Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today we're talking all about taxonomic groups within this industry, and who better to talk to than Nadia Gould. Welcome, Nadia, to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a real privilege to be part of this podcast. It's really great to have you on. Now, if you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from, and what title you hold. Yeah, so I'm Nadia Gould. I am currently Interim Senior Keeper of Primates and Carnivals at Painton Zoo. Absolutely amazing. A really amazing title to have, and and great collection to be part of but obviously looking back at your your journey your career those stepping stones along the way no one simply rolls into those positions people have those key moments throughout their lives which they can pick apart and say that is how I've got to where I am today do you have them Nadia do you have those key moments behind getting you to where you are today I do um it was a lot of uh, stepping stones to get to where I am now so I have always lived in Devon I've always visited uh, Painton Zoo and growing up, my family always have told me that when I was super young, visiting the zoo, I would always say I'd be working at Painton Zoo and with the monkeys. So I've always been keen to work with primates primarily. And I wasn't quite sure to begin with whether I wanted to be a zookeeper as part of me pondered the idea of becoming a zoo vet nurse. Um, so after school, I went to uh, my local agricultural college, Victon College, and I completed a national diploma in animal management. And as part of that course, um, I had to undergo work experience. So I decided I wanted to kind of get the best of both worlds to do a little bit in kind of a zoo and in a veterinary practice to see which one I definitely wanted to pursue. I felt it was more zoo based as in zookeeping rather than kind of the veterinary side but I wanted to see what was going on so I did a little bit of work experience at Sheldon Zoo. I did work experience in two veterinary practices and I also went out to South Africa and worked on a game reserve for a couple of weeks as well and after seeing wild baboons and vervet monkeys they totally stole my heart and I knew that I wanted to work in a zoo as a zookeeper. After I finished that course I went on to do a foundation degree in animal science and as part of that course, I did work experience at the Monkey Sanctuary in Cornwall. So again, getting a bit more experience with a variety of other primates. This enabled me to really see what it was like to be a keeper. We were not only cleaning, feeding, we were going out into the country lanes, picking brows for the primates, um, which we hadn't done, which I hadn't done before. Um, and I found that really super interesting. After I had done my foundation degree, I decided that I didn't want to top it up to a full degree. I felt that I wasn't academic enough and I wanted to get some hands-on experience. Whilst I was trying to kind of get that experience, I started working in a pet store and I did a six-month internship in the education department at Painton Zoo. I felt that I wanted to get my foot in the door and the education department was the easier route I felt to begin with. Um, after doing that internship, I then managed to become a volunteer on the mammal department. So I got to work with a huge range of mammals. And after doing that for two years, I then landed a job on the large mammal team. I did that for a year and then I transferred onto the primate team. 
and then I've been there ever since. Um, and recently, um, our teams have split a little bit. So mammals have changed from being split from large mammals and carnivores to primates. They've broken down a little bit more. So I'm now a primate and carnivore keeper. Wow, what a journey. And with it all, Nadia, as this episode is all about, obviously intertwined throughout your journey is a whole range of taxonomy, which is obviously what you've alluded to. Loads of taxa, which obviously is very much the fun behind our careers is working with these amazing animals and these amazing species to get into it really what would you define yourself as a keeper with regards to what sort of taxa links you to it and vice versa and for anyone listening why should they be working with the taxonomic group that you do so i have always been a mammal keeper i've worked with a wide range of mammal species over the years from hoof stock to primates carnivores and your small mammals Um, I would say I'm primarily a primate keeper. Um, That's where my passion lies and most of my experience. Um, However, I have recently become a carnivore keeper, which has been super interesting and kind of on the other end of the scale in terms of husbandry and behaviour compared to primates. So it's been super great learning to work with a new group of animals. At Painton Zoo, we have a huge diverse collection of primates and I've worked with the majority of the primates there. I would say I specialise in the Afro-Eurasian monkeys. I'm probably best known for working with our large troop of Hamadreus baboons. But working with primates is so varied Each species is different to the next. No two species are that similar. And then each individual has their own personalities and kind of quirky characteristics. And plus, primates keep you on your toes with the different behaviours they exhibit, social dynamics, um, managing their health and behaviour, and you're forever learning something new. The other thing with mammals... I assume just like any other taxa really, is that you get to work with some like really weird and wonderful species. And there's one animal that I care for who is super interesting, totally weird, utterly adorable, and pretty rare in the UK, actually. Um, And that's echidnas. There's only three zoos in the UK at present that keep short-beaked echidna. And they're a pretty weird animal. So for those that don't know, they are a monotreme um, alongside the duck-billed platypus. So they're egg-laying mammals. And I often describe echidnas as kind of low-maintenance animals. Food prep is minimal. They don't take much time in terms of husbandry. But if you invest time into them, you can learn so much about them. So they definitely shouldn't be underrated. And once people learn what they are and not just like a porcupine people absolutely adore kind of the underrated animals so yeah yeah really amazing now for anyone who knows you nadia will know of how intertwined you are with bruce the echidna at painton and the bond you've got what is the best and the most amazing thing you can tell us about him his personality sometimes with more mammals people often don't get to see that personality with our boy bruce 45 years old now well estimated to be about 45 and he has so much personality and the more time you spend with him the more you kind of get out of him um, he has recently started to enjoy scratches from his keepers, which I've never had before. And people might think, oh, how do you scratch an echidna because he's so spiky? So if he stood still, we can scratch in between his quills. But if he's not and he's kind of rubbing against us, we can use a tough brush. And um, yeah, he absolutely loves it. But um, he is a very stubborn animal. Yeah, with so much personality. Yeah, I really, really love that. Now... As you've alluded to, you obviously work with your primates, you work with Bruce the Echidna and a whole range of other stuff. With regards to our animals, we want to give them the best care possible, whether it be on a dietary level, whether it be 
on simply a welfare level, you know, how we we manage them. And I want to look more at the enrichment side of things. It's one of the funnest parts of being a zookeeper is stimulating out your animal to capture and hopefully demonstrate to all of us that natural behaviours we see of these species and what makes them them, which is all we want, really. Now, with them, obviously, each species will require different needs. And what I want to ask you, Nadia, is from your time with the echidna, with the primates and so on, whatever angle and whatever species you want to specialise in for this question, I'm happy to give it over to you. What would you say you have learned? What little quirky tricks have you picked up along the way? And what would you uh, chuck at our listeners to uh, give us some hot tips? So I'm going to come at it at both angles. Um, so with the echidnas, they absolutely love sensory and environmental enrichment. They are pretty food motivated, but they only get fed a couple of times a day. They have a really strong sense of smell. So we give things like fresh herbs, herbal teas and essential oils around the exhibit. And anything like super strong smelling we'll use outside in case it becomes a bit overpowering and the smell kind of lingers and he doesn't like it. Food wise for him, we use a variety of slow bows and puzzle feeders that basically anything that encourages him to flex out his a uh, long tongue so he has a six to eight inch long tongue to kind of slurp up his squidized food and one thing that he absolutely loves and is really really simple is putting his food into pine cones so what we'll do is we'll put the food into the crevices put the pine cone in the fridge and then it will cr- close up the pine cone and then he'll have to break them open um, and that kind of replicates him breaking open a termite mound um, out in the wild also with him as well as a bit of a more natural enrichment We will drill holes into logs and insert a film canister and place food in there. So he looks like he's eating from a log, um, which is pretty cool. And then primate wise, probably more focusing on kind of your medium to large monkeys, which is what I generally work with. The primates generally love all types of enrichment, um, whether it's kind of food based, sensory, environmental. We give a variety of things such as puzzle feeders, freezing food into things like Kongs or boomables. But I think it's really important not just to think about what item you're given. It's also important to consider the kind of placement and provision of that enrichment to really make that animal work for it. So doing things like hanging and suspending enrichment really enables that animal to think about balance, use different muscles, perhaps kind of hanging upside down using that prehensile tail. Um, which is really, really super important. One of the most challenging primates to enrich are for me is our Hamadreus baboons and that's because we have 53 baboons and they have the ability to destroy absolutely everything and they do it very quickly Um, however I'd probably say that they are the team's favourite primate to try and enrich because they absolutely love everything and anything Um, having said that they do not like bubbles they absolutely hate them whenever we use bubbles we'll do it every now and again they'll run to the top of the rock and then they'll just bark and then as soon as we stop um, they'll come back down so we have to set aside quite a lot of time to create new enrichment and that's just because of the sheer amount of items we need otherwise we'll get things like aggression occur our troops favorite enrichment items are probably frozen food in bamboo canes and we also give them broom heads as well our baboons are quite known for flossing their teeth with the bristles with primates as well especially with our baboons we do quite a lot of training um husbandry based training to be able to help with kind of health checking and 
being able to shift the baboons provides that kind of mental stimulation and the baboons absolutely love it to the point where you probably have six to seven baboons trying to fight over who wants to be trained first. One of the enrichment items we did a while back with our baboons as kind of a one-off was created a keeper scarecrow um, we wanted to see how the baboons would react we kitted the scarecrow out in keeper uniform and the baboons did not approve at all again they behaved like they do with the bubbles they ran to the top of the rock just barked they didn't ever approach the scarecrow and it was really good for us to be able to see because we worked protective contact with these baboons and it actually was really good because it increased group cohesion. So that helps kind of settle dynamics sometimes. So that's really great. If anyone is looking for enrichment ideas, my go-to place is checking out the Team Building with Bite website. There's like a professional page where you can see enrichment build guides for specific animal groups, um, such as your carnivores or your primates. And there's so many um, enrichment devices that I have built and given to the animals and they absolutely love them. So um, I definitely go check that out. Wow, Nadia, I'm blown away with all of that. Some really cracking stuff. I'm loving the pine cones. So I'm going to definitely steal that idea. For some reason, I've never heard of that. So that is a cracking idea, which I will be stealing for my animals at my end. Um, and, and secondly, something else I wanted to touch on with you, which you, you alluded to was, you know, enrichment It is key for our animals' welfare. It, it does stimulate them. It gives them everything and hopefully more that we need on top of everything else we do. So with regards to it, you know, it's very common that you hear keepers say that they, you know, they're running around, they're doing five jobs at once. They may not have the time. Is enrichment something that we, we should and do have the time for? Or is it just not that easy? I think it is possible. Um, obviously, there's some days that don't go to plan. I think it all comes down to a little bit of time management. If you kind of know that you have a couple busy days during your week because you have scheduled experiences or veterinary procedures going on, you can plan for that and get enrichment prepared in advance. We have like a load of frozen enrichment made up, ready to go kind of on the days where we're a little bit busy, whether it be kind of just frozen food that we're putting in cages or it's already in Kongs. And I know this is very simple enrichment, but on the days where you're really busy, that really helps. And then it's just setting aside kind of half an hour, 45 minutes in the afternoon for us to be able to really concentrate on making enrichment. So yeah, everything's in like preparation. Yeah, exactly that. Some really, really great stuff. And yeah, real wealth of knowledge coming out here, Nadia. So thank you so much for this. Now, before we do move on, there's only one other thing I wanted to touch on that you've said, and that is, you know, you've alluded to it with your primates. You know, when you do the bubbles, for example, they make that barking noise and, and they go to the top of the hill and so on. Obviously, we want our animals to have the best life and we want to stimulate as positive uh, environment as possible. But as you've suggested, it brings them together, it unites them, it, it helps the hierarchy and so on. I guess that the biggest thing to take from this is that Yes, we want them to have a positive reaction and so on. But as in the wild and captivity, we want them to show a whole range of behaviours. And sometimes that isn't as simple as just giving a positive outcome every single time. And this reaction isn't actually a bad thing after all. No, definitely not. I think as long as you're monitoring that behaviour and you have the, the animals have the ability to get away from that and they're not faced with it head on, I personally don't see an issue with it. So with kind of the scarecrow and the bubbles... It's only for a short time period and then the item is removed. 
But for us, especially with our baboon troop, when we see group dynamics are sometimes a little bit intense, we can use kind of these enrichment items to increase group cohesion. And then generally things settle. Um, And obviously we don't want to do that kind of all the time. We want the animals to kind of sort themselves out a little bit. But I do think it's a technique is worth knowing and worth having. A really unique answer. Thank you for that. Now, obviously, we all know that enrichment's great. Well, we can go one step further and make our enclosures just that much better to encompass that stimulation needed within it, whether it be from substrate to the correct sort of fencing and, and planting and housing and so on and so forth. There's a whole range of different aspects to enclosure design, and that comes with taxonomic groups as well. You know, you're going to need different stuff for a bird that you would need to an aquatic mammal or through to an invertebrate to a reptile and so on and so forth. So with them all with regards to your background with your taxonomic groups and so on is there anything needed within an enclosure specialized to your species that really makes a difference which really are the highlights behind making their lives great and making them hopefully the best they can be great question with this one i'm going to go into more of the echidna husbandry and kind of enclosure design so one of the really important features that we made with our new enclosure back in 2019 we had the opportunity to move our echidna to a brand new exhibit and one of the things we wanted to incorporate was it being more naturalistic and that was to have burrows so echidnas would naturally burrow This gives them a place to feel secure, to sleep and remove themselves from sight. So what we've done at the zoo is we've created dimensions within the exhibit. We've put kind of a load of logs down and then plastic tunnels, then put more logs on top of that and then put soil on to give it different kind of height within the exhibit. Um, We've got kind of massive plastic barrels that we've put on underground, use logs to keep them in place. We've cut out a door on top to be able to be able to access it if we need to and for cleaning and I think that's a real game changer with echidnas a lot of places will give them kind of a nest box they don't have that feeling of being insecure and in control of being underground and that's what they need and it's really really worked with our echidna he's really benefited from it he sleeps in his burrows he has multiple different ones with different substrates in And it's really interesting throughout the year and throughout the seasons, which burrow he prefers. So during the summer, he goes for the sand burrow because it's a lot cooler, I guess. Whereas at the moment, going into winter, he's in his straw burrow. So I would say that is a game changer for us and moving forward with echidna husbandry and exhibit design. Really, really cool. It really is the small touches which go a really long way. So some great, great stuff there and great suggestions for people to take away. Now, before we move on to the next segment of this episode, do you have anything, you know, in the form of advice, little gems that you can pass on to our listeners from your journey so far and what you've learned along the way? Yeah, I would say perseverance is key. Try and get as much experience as you can. It doesn't necessarily need to be zoo based at the start it could be through your kennels your pet stores and even different kind of wildlife centers and then if you get your knockbacks don't let it hold you back kind of be adaptable find a way to make yourself unique pick up extra skills such as things like even basic DIY skills that you might be doing at home that can be used to build enrichment Things like browse identification. If you you love nature and you're going out for walks, whether you're out walking the dog, try and find a little bit of time to try and 
learn how to ID different brows. It's all really super helpful depending on what you're going on to work with. I would say be open to working with all species across multiple taxa. You might find an animal that you're not sure of working with, but generally that animal that you're not sure you want to work with is the one that you generally fall in love with once you have an understanding for them and you've worked with them for a little bit of time. I would also say, especially at the beginning stages of your career, is join ABWAC and attend the yearly symposium and attend some of the workshops. Um, it's a real opportunity to network with other people that might be in the same position as you, some people that have experience and have gone through what you are about to go through. And everyone is super friendly and happy to talk about their, their jobs and animals. So yeah, put yourself out there, keep persevering in case you get some knockbacks you'll get there in the end some really really great advice and words there and i'm pretty sure my, if my memory serves right that's how we met nadia through abwack through networking at conferences and i think it's a great great way of, of progressing throughout this industry and the old phrase it's not what you know it's who you know i think that's how you strengthen yourself in this industry by getting your name out there and and, and talking to people which yeah i could not not agree more now, this leads us to the big questions. It's a part of this podcast episode, which we tackle some of the harder questions throughout this industry, and we'll try and find a few answers along the way. So number one leads us to zookeeping as a whole. We both know this industry now requires us to do so, so much. We're not simply a one-trick pony. We're viewed to be nutritionists, we're viewed to be educationists, welfare officers, and so much more. Now, within our role, what would you say the largest challenge is? And if it's even possible, how do we overcome it? Managing your time and your workload. We have such a huge amount of work to do and that can vary day by day. There'll be kind of things that will pop up all of a sudden. There might be kind of something go wrong within your exhibit and it needs fixing or an animal's health might decline quite rapidly and you need to spend time there. So I think managing your time and teamwork is a massive part of that. You need to be able to work with the rest of your team to be able to bounce off each other and support each other. I think that's the way of moving forward is, yeah, managing your time, managing your workload to make it beneficial to you and to your animals and then teamwork. Absolutely. That's number one achieved. Now on to number two. And that, Nadia, leads us to something which is very, very much a, a big topic here, not only in our industry, but in the modern day. And that is well-being, your mental and physical health, and more importantly, that balance between home and work life. We're told constantly we should keep that balance there. We should enforce that. But is it really that simple with animals relying on us day after day? Is it something that we can achieve or is the inevitable just going to happen sadly and it does come home with us? Yeah, I think it's a really hard one to balance. Potentially gets easier as you get older. Yeah, zookeepers have so much love and passion for their animals that they work with. We generally spend more time with our animals than we do with our family and friends. And yeah, it is the hardest thing to kind of switch off from the job. You know, there are times where that's acceptable because could be planning a new animal could be arriving or leaving the zoo that you're working at or there could be kind of an animal expected to give birth at any time or showing signs of illness and needs kind of extra care. But I think not learning to have the ability to switch off day to day, in my opinion, will only end negatively in the long run, either becoming too kind of emotionally involved 
or could negatively impact your mental health. So I believe, again, time management is super important. And yeah, just kind of learning to achieve what you can achieve at work and then kind of learning to switch off. Yeah, very much so. Very, very important. And uh, yeah, great, great answer. Now, the next question then, Nadia, links us to, you know, we have some of the highest quantity of zoos in the UK of anywhere in the globe in such close proximity. Now, with that, we should be all in it for the same reasons, to educate, to inspire, to get our messages across about conservation and and helping our species that we can serve both in the wild, but also here in captivity. So the question I've got for you, Nadia, is do you feel we're currently doing enough as a collective to achieve these goals? Or do you feel there's still more needed to thrive on this topic yeah i feel that um this varies between collections but i do feel with we are doing a great job but i do feel we could be doing more i feel during kind of the covid time zoos adapted to provide kind of more education to audiences who couldn't visit their zoos kind of using social media doing live stream talks um and that kind of has stopped a little bit now So at Peyton Zoo, we have adapted to provide QR codes, which people can scan and hear keeper talks that we don't usually will do day to day. At first, maybe they were used. Potentially now they haven't. And I think we need to adapt to when not hitting kind of that education. So at Peyton Zoo, we have educational presenters who conduct the kind of keeper talks and we have experience guides who do the animal experiences. And I definitely understand why this is in place, because it frees us keepers up to undertake other tasks. But as a keeper, I personally miss the guest interaction as it's now kind of loosely removed from my job role. However, you know, of course, myself and the rest of the team enjoy having a chat with guests. And if we're feeding an animal and people have got questions, then we'll obviously take up that opportunity to have a real chat and try and educate our guests on the animals that we're talking about. For me, back a few years ago, daily especially during the summer I'd be doing keeper talks to sometimes over 100 visitors and that gave me confidence to be able to present at keeper conferences whereas now not carrying out those talks I feel a lot more nervous and the last talk I presented at a conference um, I think that really came across on my delivery so I personally feel that zoos should consider keepers remaining to do some of the keeper talks obviously the education departments at some zoos do an absolutely fantastic job and they should carry on doing what they're doing but I feel keepers are part of kind of the fun for visitors as well people want to see the keepers and I'm sure all keepers can say that they've been watched for an extensive period of time cleaning an an exhibit which has no animals in it because people just want to see what the keeper is doing you could be walking along the zoo with an empty bucket and people are following you because they think you're going to do something interesting when actually you're not. I think people also, the fun is the keepers as well. So, yeah, I definitely think we can improve on public engagement. Yeah, very, very much so. And I think you've alluded to it really, really nicely. In the modern day, we are the entertainment. The zookeepers are there to entertain. The animals are simply there to educate and to conserve, which is the true purpose behind a modern day zoo. Now, with our next question, it kind of combines with that, Nadia, and that is, you know, we've alluded to ABWAC and, and conferences and networking and coming together as a collective. 
But do you feel at a zookeeping level, we're currently collaborating to a high enough level to to make change happen and to do our role to its fullest? I believe organisations such as Biaza and Abwak are making a real difference with the amount of workshops and symposiums available to keepers. I think they're on the increase. There's more and more each year. And also, like in the last year, we have uh, Keep, the new Keeper Exchange Programme. And I feel this is huge, hugely benefiting keepers to network and learn more. Collections could do a little bit more to support their keepers in attending more conferences. I think keepers self-funding to attend workshops and conferences is on the rise. And I understand, you know, zoos don't have an endless pot of money. But I do think CPD is extremely important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with the current regulations coming in through Biaza and the Secretary of State guidelines, it will only go from strength to strength and continue to build. So fingers crossed, only good things ahead. Now, you'd be happy to know you have absolutely smashed apart those big questions. And we're now on to the, the straight and the narrow. We're on to the quick fire round at the end of this episode. And that leads us to a section which can either go really speedy as the uh, section alludes to, or can erupt into conversation. So let's see how what way it goes, Nadia, and give it a go. Now, number one, it's quite a simple one, I would say, but who knows? And that is, what is your favourite animal? So I probably should say echidnas, but actually it's Diana monkeys. For me, they're one of the most stunning primates and their vocalisations are fantastic. We at Pete and Zoo have communication with our Diana monkeys they will whistle at us and we'll whistle back to them to say hello and then we kind of keep going back and forth and like you get to have a bit of a conversation with them so I think they're probably one of the few primates that I've worked with where you actually have a bit of a conversation with them so yeah I love them a really great answer now the next question then is what is your top tip for mental health and well-being so I think mental health is just as important as your physical health and sometimes you look after your physical health not enough with your mental health so my advice is don't let the passion of your job consume your mental health if you're struggling with your mental health at work feel chronically stressed or you're suffering from burnout hopefully there'll be someone within your organization that you feel comfortable speaking to whether that be a colleague or a manager or a family member or a friend. But if not, there are organisations specifically out there to help and support you with managing your mental health in the workplace, such as Abled Futures. I struggled pretty pretty badly with my mental health a year ago and kind of after a few years of avoiding kind of chronic stress and burnout. And with the support of my manager at the time and with a vocational rehabilitation consultant at Able Futures, I was able to take a temporary role out of the general day-to-day zookeeping. And I was offered a temporary role in an office doing kind of the paperwork side of zookeeping. And that gave me a bit of a break to be able to sort myself out as such, if you like. And I've been back in my normal role now for quite a while. And I'm now kind of full of enthusiasm and passion, just like I was at the start of my career. So I would say never underestimate speaking up and taking care of yourself. And hopefully you've all got a really good manager um, that will support you. Yeah, once again, a really, really nice answer. And thank you so much for opening up there, Nadia. It's uh, exactly that. There are people out there to communicate with, to help with. And I think that's the, the best way forward. So, you know, some really, really nice words now. The next question I've got for you 
is really left field. So bear with me. And that is, what is your favourite film? So I would say I don't really have one, but the film that I watched the most is Home Alone. Um, I absolutely love Christmas. So that is kind of my go-to movie every year. Well, would you look at that? It's almost fate that this episode happened to be in the month of Christmas and that happened to be your answer. I know, it it was meant to be. (laughs) Absolutely. Now, the next one then is another uplifting question. And that is, what, in your opinion, is the best part of the industry definitely the animals the bonds that you develop with them is absolutely indescribable to be honest and also when you're working really hard on a project or developing things such as like husbandry protocols or animal training and you eventually see that hard work dissemination and like pure passion really benefit the animal for me i'm like oh i'm really proud of myself and that gives me more motivation to move on to something else um, and push forward. Very much so. Okay, to take you absolutely anywhere on this planet, what zoo would you like to visit globally and why? So I have two. I'd really like to visit Jalava Zoo in Czech Republic. I might be saying that wrong because one of my favourite monkeys, a King Colobus, moved there a few years ago. And I'd love to see how he's getting on. And also the second zoo is Hillsville Sanctuary in Australia. I've been really lucky to visit a few zoos in Australia. But Hillsville Sanctuary is the only zoo in the world to offer a platypus encounter. So I'd really love to have the time to chat to a platypus expert and really see that anatomy of platypus up close. Some really, really great suggestions there. Now, the next one then is what is the one trait, one attribute inside yourself which has allowed you to get to where you are today? I would say determination and passion. So determination to succeed in my job role and my passion is to do the absolute best for the animals in my care. You know, as keepers, we have the ultimate responsibility for the animals in our care and the quality of lives they live. Absolutely. Okay, the next question, I don't have an answer for this still, and that is, what, if you weren't a zookeeper, would you be? I would love to be a police dog handler. I think I have the personality to be um, a police officer and to work within the canine unit. It just fits everything together. A really, really great answer. Now, to reflect a previous question, what do you still feel that we need to improve within this industry? I think keepers being part of in-situ conservation, particularly for the species that they care for. I feel every keeper should have the opportunity to go see these animals out in the wild and see firsthand the threats that they're facing to really bring that kind of passion and drive back to be able to educate visitors on kind of the threats that they're facing and also to learn a little bit more kind of the husbandry and health side of things. So yeah, for me, in situ conservation. And that doesn't necessarily have to be to these exotic species. We need to be all on board with our native species as well. Very much so. Now we're on that second to last question of the whole podcast episode. I want to delve a little bit more into your own brain and your own life then, Nadia. Who within the industry is your idol? So I'm not sure if I have any idols as such, but I have a huge amount of people that I have looked up to and have inspired me over the years. And I would say majority of them are all colleagues, past and present, and they've kind of inspired me and influenced my personal development and been like a great support. So back when I was a trainee keeper, my senior keeper at the time, Kate Jenner, she no longer works in the industry, was someone I absolutely idolised. She invested so much time and training into me and gave me some such amazing opportunities as a trainee keeper. Got to hand rear King Colobus and generally as a trainee keeper, that's something I definitely didn't think I'd be doing. I thought I would have to have 
so much more experience to be able to be involved in that team. So I don't think I'd be the keeper I am without her support. I would also say my recent manager, Lisa Britton, has been a huge support to me over the last um, couple of years. She's been a fantastic manager and she always has time for everyone, um, which I absolutely admire. I would say our current and past vet team have been an incredible support to me as well, sharing knowledge, involving me a lot (laughs) during general anaesthetics and kind of educating me on how I can be part of kind of the general anaesthetics and taking the time to kind of show me everything, let me be involved. And I also feel really privileged to be part of a strong, passionate team at at present. I'm not sure if every keeper does it, but I'm sure some keepers kind of fantasize about building their own kind of dream team. And right now I'm kind of living that. Um, Each of my team members at the moment inspire me, all for different kind of reasons. But one thing that really sticks out is their love and passion for our baboon troop. In my opinion, they are kind of the most challenging group of primates we have. You have to kind of learn to ID, physically ID all 53 animals and kind of understand their complex behaviours. The record keeping that comes along with having 53 animals housed together. And we have kind of a bad reputation historically with working with them just because of the sheer amount of workload involved with working with them. But each of my current keepers literally have thrown themselves into the section and each are doing a fantastic job. And I'm really proper proud to be part of the team. Oh, and I must mention Jim Mackey as well. What a man. I've only met Jim fairly recently. I knew a lot about him, ever meet him, but the passion and knowledge that he has when it comes to animal training and animal behaviour is definitely something to be admired and to be striving towards. Some really nice words there. Where exactly did you meet Jim Mackey? Oh, I think that was at a mammal working group. And then we've just, just come back from Zaps, the Zoo Animal Training Symposium. So I got to spend a couple of days there catching up with him and having some really good conversations. Ah, so you would have come across quite a lot of our previous speakers on Zookeeping 101 from Annette to Kim to Jim and, and so on. Yeah, I would definitely recommend anybody interested in animal training to attend the Zoo Animal Training Symposium um, in 2025. It was absolutely insane. The, the speakers that were there was absolutely insane. So much knowledge gained. Some really lovely words. Now, we're coming towards the end of this episode, Nadia. I now need you to sum up this whole industry for us in only three words. Well, that's quite difficult. <laughs> um, I would describe it as essential, privilege, and ever-changing three very fitting words there to sum up the whole industry and the whole episode thank you so much for coming on Ardia. we're now at the end and for myself and the listeners i cannot thank you enough for coming on sharing your stories your words of wisdom and your journey along the way it's been a real pleasure a long time coming and yeah i say a true true pleasure to have you on zookeeping 101 no thank you so much it's been amazing thank you hopefully we'll get you on again very very soon yeah that'd be great take care until then thank you bye bye and that concludes this week's episode what an amazing guest and amazing time we had now if you have enjoyed it please do subscribe on instagram facebook or our podcast channels to zookeeping 101 I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.